I will go ahead and open it to the book of Hebrews. We have been marching through this book since, I believe, February. And we're almost done. We are almost, you are almost there. Praise the Lord. We are in chapter 11, and I think this is page 1008, 1009 in that blue Bible in your pew. Uh, Chapter 11, verses 32 to 40. This is going to take us out of this wonderful chapter, oftentimes referred to as the heroes of the faith chapter or the hall of faith. Um, and it's, it's, it's going to transition into another incredible chapter, chapter 12, that talks about and begins with this cloud of witnesses that we have around us as believers in the church. So let me, let, let us give our attention to the reading of God's word found in chapter 11, verse 32 to 40 this morning. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. 36. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Verse 39. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray this morning and we give you thanks for your word and we ask that you would pour out your grace upon us, that you would give us the ability to see and hear things otherwise we could not because of your spirit. And we pray that you would allow us the joy of leaving here changed people by understanding more of your love for us in Jesus. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. I've, I've talked once before about family time, family dinner time. <clears throat> Some of you all might recall how that really never happens in our family because we just can't get any of our kids to come and eat. But um, you, you all have family dinner time experiences. And one of the things that, that I did say about that, that I think we could all sort of agree that this is what this is for, is that when we have family dinner time to come around the table, it is for that purpose that all of us would be there, that we'd all be sharing a meal. And by virtue of all us being there, it's family dinner time. If a sibling is off in their room still, if you know somebody is a, a, a spouse is not at the table yet, typically you wait till that sibling or family member joins the table because family dinner time isn't complete, though the table might be set, until we're all around the table. 
right? Till we're all around the table. This has been a concept that I have actually been thinking more about than I realized as I've been preparing for this this week over the past 10 years since I got married to Ada because my family, my mom and my dad and my older brother, when you do family time there, what I grew up doing family time is, look, if you don't make it and it's gone, that's your fault. That's what I, that's how I was raised for better or for worse. We have story, it's kind of a running joke, but it's really not funny anymore. We have stories where mom was going back to the kitchen to bring another dish. And by the time she got back, whatever she had brought before was gone and nobody saved her a thing. You can talk to, you can talk to me about that later. <laughs> I, I'm still repenting, but that, that's, that's what it was like. There was no sense of waiting the completeness of this family sit around the table. When I married Ada, her family was the complete opposite of that for my family. I mean, nobody sat down until everybody was there. And as you can probably imagine, I learned about that the hard way. I mean, I'm just, you know, gnawing on my food, everything. I'm looking up and what, you know, oh, okay, let's sit down, let's pray, let's do this. Um, what's, the, what's the point of what I'm saying? Like I said, when we think about a meal or a supper or a family dinner time, the food, the table, everything can be perfect and be set, plate, cups, forks, knives, everything. But if somebody is missing, then it is not complete. If someone is not at that table, it is not complete. And I start here this morning because when the Bible talks about salvation, this is the metaphor it uses, a supper. And we get glimpses in this text that it's beautiful. Did I want to turn that over just then? No, I didn't. We get glimpses in this text where we learn about the salvation that Jesus has, has already perfected for us on the cross. But it's not complete. And the reason it's not complete is because not everybody is yet around that table. There are folks, generations from now, who have yet to believe that by the grace of the new covenant, Jesus is waiting. He's waiting for them. We talked about this. He's waiting for your kids and your kids' grandkids. And that's incredible. And the Bible has a terminology, as a term for this, and it's called covenantal. When we think about the Bible as covenantal, there's this approach to it that says, this is, this is not just personal, which is how we kind of think about salvation in our culture. It's covenantal, which means that there are promises that extend to everyone. And until everybody is here, that salvation is not complete. And so as we finish chapter 11 on the heroes of faith and prepare for 12, the author and the pastor of this letter is reminding his Jewish Christian audience of this and hopes that they will be strengthened to persevere. In other words, to begin to think about how much bigger their faith is, so much bigger than just themselves. And I want us to see that this morning. And we're going to see that by looking at two questions. It's not in your bulletin, but the two questions are this. Where is your faith and what is your faith for? Where is your faith and what is your faith for? So it looks like that first one, where is your faith? This chapter has illustrated for us so well what faith is and what it looks like. 
especially this last section. In this section that, 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 we, that I just read to you that you're looking at, hopefully, we get two groups of people. We get what I'm going to call the winners of life, and then we get another group, the losers of life. And this may be how the world sees them, but I, I, I want to also say this is, in some senses, how the church sees these groups. It's certainly not how the Bible sees these groups. But we get two groups, the winners of life and the losers in life. The first group there, which is verses 32 to 36, lists six heroes. And it says, through faith, they conquered kingdoms and forced justice. I mean, you heard the whole list, right? And when you get to the end of that list, especially the part that says women received back their dead by resurrection. Y'all might remember our study in 1 Kings 17, where the prophet Elijah raises the widow's son. That's what he's referring to. When we get to the end of that group, you, you're like, that's the group I want to be a part of. That's, that's what I want. That's, who I, that's what I want my, for my, my life, my faith. When we think about resumes, this is what I want on my resume. These are the winners of life. These are the heroes of faith, of the church. And it's who I want to be because it must mean that their faith was real. Is perhaps an assumption for you and for me. We look at this and we say, their faith must be real. They figured it out. But notice something about these six names for a moment, if you will. While many of them certainly had their, what I like to refer to as their one shining moment. While many of them had spectacular moments of faith, you know, consider Gideon, who took his troops down from 32,000 down to 300 believing that the Lord would win the battle for him. Or even David fighting Goliath. How could we forget that, right? When David says, the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Like all these guys at some point in time had their one shining moment of faith. But when we look closer at the, the, the full picture of their lives, these six names are anything but model Christians in the modern sense. In the way that you might think about what a Christian should be and look like. Maybe more specifically, what faith should look like. In fact, all of them had, it seems, more moments of flawed faith than actual true faith. Samson, what is he doing here? I mean, he's one of the most pagan people in the Bible, right? Can't get his mind off the girls. Barak was far from courageous in battle. Jephthah, one of the craziest stories, just this rash vow after the Lord had won victory for him, makes this rash vow about sacrificing the first person who would come out of his house. And who is that person? It's his daughter. And then he follows through on it as if the Lord, like this, where did, what is this? Who is this? Why is this person commended for their faith? And then, of course, we know the rest of the story from David with Bathsheba and Uriah, all of them were deeply flawed men who have flawed faith. The audience would know that. And I, I just want to make sure we know that too. Because oftentimes we look at this and we say, these are the people who I need to be like. I, I would actually argue that morally speaking, you are better people than these people today. Maybe not Samuel, but you know, hey, five out of six, that's not bad. So why does the Bible put them in, in this chapter that is often referred to as the hall of faith? Why are they here? They are here because of where their faith is. They are here because of where their faith is. That is, they are here because of the object of their faith. 
It was through their faith, as the text says, that they became heroes of faith. In other words, it was their object of faith that made them victorious in life, that made them winners in life, if we want to use that phrase anymore. But why their faith was commended, and this is the point, is because of the object, where it was. Look, 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 we look at what David did, and we should. But when we do that, we often fail to listen to what he says. For the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into your hand, into our hands. It was where they placed their faith. And the object of their faith, as the author of Hebrews has been showing us, is Jesus. If you want a title for this sermon, it's Hope for People Who Believe Poorly. The object of their faith was Jesus. And these people didn't even do that well. They believed that, that, God would, that God promised somebody to come who would be their deliverer. And they put their faith in the fact that that promise would happen, that that deliverer would show up. And his name is Jesus, the object of their faith. Our faith, by go to the other side of the coin, cannot, for example, be in other objects. It can't be in this world. We've heard that before. Our faith is not in our feelings. Feelings are good. God created feelings. They're important. We've got to have them. We've got to know about them. But they come and go. Our faith is not in our intellect. You know, I, I, I believe correctly. I read the right theology. Therefore, I have salvation. I need to be in chapter 11. All right, our faith is not in those things. Our faith isn't even in our faith which is, it, that is often easy to point to in the way that we believe or in moments of our lives like our baptism or our devotional hour, our going to church, our obedience, our morality. And it's easy to take those things, the actions of our faith, and place our faith in those things. I had the opportunity, or not the opportunity, I had listened to a few Pod, sermons on podcasts, and, and one that I like listening to preached a sermon this last Sunday, and he mentioned this Puritan named Thomas Brooks. And he was reading about this, this book that Thomas Brooks was a Puritan in the 17th century, it's the 1600s, okay? 17th century, and he wrote a book called The Privy Key of Heaven. And what it's about is like 20 reasons to have closet times. Now we need to define that term real quick. Closet times for the Puritans was what we would refer to as quiet times. And it comes from Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, if you're going to pray, lock yourself in your closet where you will be alone, be by yourself, so that you're right, you know, that kind of, that closet. Like the devotional hour, the devotional period to go and do this and be with the Lord. He, they called them closet times. And he wrote this book, 20 Reasons Why to Have Closet Times, but I want to read this section for you because when I heard it from the sermon, I had, to, I had to pull it up. I had to look at it and read it. It's, it's amazing. Listen to this. He says, take heed of resting upon closet duties. Take heed of trusting in closet duties. There are many that go a round of duties as mill horses go their round in a mill that, and rest upon them when they are done using the means as mediators. And so they fall short of Christ and heaven at once. Closet duties rested in will as eternally undo a man as the greatest and foulest enormities. Open wickedness slays her thousands, 
But a secret resting upon duties slays her ten thousands. Multitudes bleed inwardly of this disease and die forever. Open profaneness is a broad, dirty way which leads to hell. But trusting in religious duties is a sure way, though a cleaner one, to hell. And then here's the part that got me. Do them, closet duties. Do them, I must. But glory in them, I must not. He who rests in his closet duties, he makes a savior of his closet duties. Let all of your closet duties lead you to Jesus and leave you more in communion with him. And here's the key word, and in dependence upon him. What is he saying? This is is 17th century, y'all. You cannot put your faith in your faith. Your faith must, must, must be directed to the object of your faith, which has to be Jesus. If you want to know why these six men are in this chapter, or all these names are in this chapter, it's because that is what they were, that is where their faith was. But you would think that we would just kind of move on from here, because that's a great way to end the hall of faith. But it's not, is it? We get another group of people, and these people, as I've mentioned, I'm calling the losers of life because why? They didn't win anything here. Matter of fact, if, if all of them didn't die, they were tortured beyond unbelief, and they were never remembered again. This is the list that you are not thinking about when you go to seminary. When you decide to be the leader in your youth group or go lead a Bible somewhere in your fraternity or sorority or wherever, right? This is not the sexy faith that we talk about or like to think about. The point of these, of this other section though is to ask, why are they here? Why does he list them next to these amazing people that we tend to think about? And the answer is the same. It's where their faith is. Their faith was in the object of their faith, which was Jesus. Verse 36 to 38 records people who experienced horrific violence and torture acted upon them. And the text hides none of that. When you begin to dig into this a little bit, you, you, you hear that the author, most people believe, is referring to a lot of this. He's drawing from the Maccabean revolt in the second century BC. This would be like 160 BC. And uh, from the book of Second Maccabees, which maybe some of you all have come across, records a lot of this history. And I, I, I read a little bit of this just um, in preparation. In chapter uh, 7, there's, there's an account in 6, but chapter 7 records the history of the seven brothers and their mother who were, uh, during the Maccabean revolt, who were being persecuted for their faith. And the king had them drawn up and quartered because they wouldn't eat pig's flesh, which as a Jew, that would be against the law of God. And so what you begin to, to read, which I'm going to read for you here in a second, a little bit, is that all seven of them died while their mother looked on, and then she was murdered as well. Here's how it starts. It came to pass also that seven brethren, together with their mother, were, were apprehended and compelled by the king to eat swine's flesh against the law, for which they... For for which end they were tormented with whips and scourges. But one of them, who was the eldest, said thus, What wouldst thou ask? 
or learn of us. We are ready to die rather than to transgress the laws of God received from our fathers. Then the king, being angry, commanded frying pans and brazen cauldrons to be made hot, which forthwith, being heated, he commanded to cut out the tongue of him that had spoken first, and the skin of his head being drawn off, to chop off also the extremities of his hands and feet, the rest of his brethren and his mother looking on. All six other brothers would get this too, for not recanting. This happens to all of them. And the youngest son was even offered riches if, if he would do so, but he doesn't. Now, I want you to stop for a second. We've been traveling in this book since February. We've been wondering why these Christians are wavering. Why are they not persevering? Do you think they have this in mind? Oh, of course they do. It's easy for us to sit in this room, isn't it? And sometimes point the finger. But have you ever read history of your family's family watching members be burned to death? Fingers chopped off. You know the rest. Absolutely they do. But the author of Hebrews commends these people. If you notice there in verse 38... He says to these people, the world was not worthy of them. Now, the Bible holds these two groups, these winners and losers, as I'm calling them, in life on the same plane. And and that should cause us to pause for a moment. How is it possible that both of these groups are considered to be heroes? I mean, didn't we just hear about what this other group did? And that's why the point for the author is where your faith is. That is why these two groups are here. That is why these winners and these losers, as we might call them, are side by side. It's because none of that matters if the object of your faith isn't Jesus Christ. It it doesn't matter what your circumstances are telling you. That's why he's putting this here for them. Think about that. Look, we've got people over here who are, you know, conquering kingdoms, breaking the mouths of lions. I would like to see that. And people over here who are being burned to death. And he's saying, look, none of that matters. None of that is an indictment on your faith, on the faithfulness of God, on the promises of God. These people are heroes because of the object of their faith. Do not miss that. This is, this is why it is so important for us as we leave here to, to, to carry the weight of this object of our faith into this next chapter for sure, but into our lives as well. And it forces us to ask, where is our faith? And to get at that question, you've got to ask yourself, what am I depending on? When, when the rubber meets the road, this is where persecution really, you know, what's the word? Helps the church, right? Thins the church. No, that's not the right word. But it allows our faith to shine because when when that hits the fan, when circumstances hit the fan, when when suffering comes into your life, you find out what you are depending upon, and whatever that is, friends, is the object of your faith. And are you asked to believe in that perfectly? Did you see the six names? No, you're not. 
I'm recalling uh, the Father in, in Mark's Gospel. Father, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. God is so gracious to us that he would allow us the opportunity to fail at believing correctly and then being able to repent and confess and go back to the true object of our faith, which is Jesus. You could be escaping the edge of the sword one day and then receiving the sword the next and neither situation says anything about God's faithfulness, his promises to you, or lack thereof. Circumstances, which has been a huge theme for us in this book, do not determine God's love for you. Nor do they determine the quality of your faith. Whether you're doing it right, it's what that faith is in. It's the object of your faith. Where is it? This has been a long first point. I'm aware of that. Let's move to the second one. What is your faith for? And I hope this is shorter. If not, I'll just stop. As we leave 38, we get a bit of a curveball in 39. And it's, it's a bookend to the very first verse of this chapter, but it also transitions us to chapter 12. And what we find about both groups, these heroes of the faith, is that none of them, none of these groups, get what was promised so now I'm really confused. What are, you, what are you talking about? First, let me define promise really quickly, just for, you know, because this, this, this is capital P promise, right? This is Jesus coming and dying and resurrecting, inaugurating this new covenant that the author's been talking about. They received little P promises, as you read throughout Scripture, that, 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 that Jesus or that the Bible talks about. But when the text says that they did not get what was promised, you you just need to know what that promise is, is they never got to see what their object of their faith, Jesus, never got to see him come to earth and die and resurrect. Uh, The privilege that we have, they did not get. So that's what that that promise is there. Um, And so this, this... Begs the question, what then is, is your faith for? Look, if they didn't get what was promised, what is, that, what is it for? What is our faith for? And there are two answers to that question that I want us to see in this, this second point. And the first is, your faith is for you, but second, it's for others. Faith is for you, and it's also for others. The first is obvious. Your faith is for you, that you would believe in Jesus and be united to him. That's right. Your faith is personal. It is individual. It is for you. That you would believe, and through that faith, that you would be united to him. In other words, if our faith is concerned with the object of our faith, then what our faith is for is uniting us to that object. Right? Simple illustration. If I have a chair here, and I'm going to go sit in that chair, and it looks like it will hold me, the moment I go and sit in that chair, I, I place my faith in that chair, Right? Assuming it will hold, it might have a trick leg, I don't know. As a matter of fact, it's a good exercise. I got here this morning and I cut off a couple of legs of the chairs out here just to see, you know, what would happen later on. If, no, just kidding. But if I were to go sit in that chair, right, I would have to put my faith in that chair that it would hold me. That's the object of my faith. Now, what did my faith do? What well, brought me and that chair closer together, didn't it? Right? Very simple. But I don't want you to miss the point. The point of our faith, first and foremost, is to bring us together with the object of our faith to bring us to Jesus. But the second one, the one that's not so obvious to us that we often overlook is that part of our, that is that, that what our faith is for also is for others. 
What we find in verse 40, which is incredible to me, incredible to me, is that our faith is also for others. Notice what he says here. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they, who's the they? That's the heroes of the faith in chapter 11. They should not be made perfect. What is he saying? He is saying to the Hebrew audience here that in some way their salvation, the heroes of the faith, isn't fully complete without the faith of those to come later. Until they are all joined together in Christ with them. Yes, all of our faith is made perfect in Christ. This is the capital P promise that they were looking towards. It is the meal set on the table That's the better plan that he had for them. But the fullness of that salvation involves all Christians who would believe past, present, and future. Being united with Christ. Sitting around the table. This is how the Bible is covenantal. How salvation is covenantal while we live in a world that is highly individualistic. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So if the salvation of those who came before Christ was incomplete apart from believers in this day and age, then it also means that their salvation is incomplete apart from your salvation as well. Which raises the question that Hebrews has been addressing. How is God working in the new covenant? Before I get to that, because your faith is for others, the question that this brings up is, do you think of your salvation as being complete without the salvation of those to come, without everybody being around the table? I don't think about salvation like that. You know where my eyes are? Right here. Right here. But Jesus is waiting That's what he's telling these people. And part of that means is that your perseverance is part of this better plan, this new covenant plan where God is unfolding throughout throughout salvific history. His plan to gather all of those people. Okay? And so one of the questions this addresses is how is God working in the new covenant? How is he working in this better covenant that he's been talking about? Well, he's working by the Holy Spirit through the church. Persevering from generation to generation, the faith of the saints being put on display for the world to see. This, friends, is how your faith is not just for yourself. The new covenant is going out into this world through the church, through you, by the Holy Spirit. We, we just, in other words, your faith is so much bigger than your own personal salvation. And part of what allows us the the encouragement, the strength to persevere is to recognize and to get us out of ourselves, to recognize that this is so much bigger than ourselves. Oftentimes, that is exactly what I need in moments where I am suffering, in despair, wondering what this is all about. I need to see you. And the generations after you need to see you. That's how big this is. This is the better plan. God is using his church and the faith of believers 
to do this. This is how your faith is not just for yourself, it is for others. And what we begin to see in this book, as I just mentioned, is that you're just not living for yourself. Friends, when you think about your salvation, I'll ask it again, do you think about it being complete apart from other believers? Because that's the question he's getting them to see at this point. That if, if those long ago, if these heroes were able to persevere for you so that the grace of the gospel could come to you, how could you not do that for other generations as the church goes out? Doesn't this give fresh meaning to the words, love your neighbor? Right? It's not just something Christian to do. That it actually involves the plan of God, the full salvation of God, that he, doesn't, that he is waiting to experience that joy until all are brought around the table. And one of the ways they'll be brought around the table is loving your neighbor. Is letting them see the object of your faith. I had a hard time trying to figure out how to word this. I hope this is being made clear. But we need to begin to see that our faith isn't just for ourselves, it is for others. And oftentimes the fact that it is for others is, is the element that pushes us forward. That gets us out of ourselves. That sees the bigger picture of this wonderful salvation, this better way. That God has brought his kingdom to bear for us. This is how our faith is for others. So we've seen those two points, and I want to land the plane here. Where's your faith, and what is your faith for? And I always like to come back to the question, well, you know, how does this help me hold on, Ryan? Right? Why do this? I recall the Maccabean revolt that I just read. I still have that in my mind, why do this? And it always, always comes back to the love of Jesus. There are two ongoing metaphors throughout scripture that we hear, supper and marriage, of the way that God talks about him and the church. And in Revelation, we get this picture of the marriage supper of the lamb, do we not? Where we put both of those together. So we talked about supper at the beginning. So let's talk about marriage at the end, right? You can hang with me after I talk about that, if I I mention that. I I want you to get this. As we look at this, as we look and see how our faith is for others and how God is waiting for all those to be made complete around the table, God's love for us is shown in his patience and in his willingness to wait for us before he experiences final glory. That is, Jesus will not experience, and you've got to, you've got to listen to this, unmixed joy until he has all believers complete with him, which means you and me and all those that would come after us, our children. It's covenantal. And what this tells us, the importance of it being covenantal, is that we mattered to Jesus before we ever knew him. And here's what I mean by that. Three weeks ago, I talked about the abstinence movement and its intentions versus how it made us Pharisees. Um, how it asked us, made us ask questions, how far is too far? Uh, but more importantly, it, forced, it, it led us in a direction that said that my purity, my holiness is because of me. I want to flip that coin. I want to talk about how waiting, for example, how God has designed waiting in marriage, monogamy, if you will, how it actually is a picture of this. This is the wedding supper metaphor. One of the reasons the Bible preaches monogamy or as we would call it, saving sex until marriage, is because it is covenantal. It belongs in the context of a covenantal promise made to someone else. In that context, 
It says this, it says this to a spouse on their wedding day, having waited only for them. It says, you matter to me before I knew you, before you knew me. Okay, I know when I say that, that is, a, that, that is, a, that, that is hard for us to hear. So I, I want us to stop with whatever ideas we have of this, whatever our experiences, painful experiences are of this. I already said three weeks ago, none of us are perfect here. I want us to focus on the intent. Why does the Bible, why does God create it like this? Why did he ask us to wait until marriage? Why does he create this covenant? Think about the intent. Forget about your experiences for a second. We're all messed up. We are all messed up. And think about the intent here for a second. Okay? One of the reasons he does this is so that we could possibly get a taste of what it means for somebody to hold off pleasure and joy for one particular moment so that I would know as a spouse that I matter to this person way before they knew me and I knew them. Do you see that? What would that say to you about somebody? It would say you could trust them. It would say that they love you. Friends, how is this any different than what Jesus is doing covenantally as he waits for all believers? He wants you to know that before you ever knew him, he knew you and he loved you. And he is not going to experience the fullness of his glory and salvation until all of us are around that table. It is a beautiful metaphor. That we mess up, but the intent of it shows the glory of his love. And maybe more than anything, that he can be trusted. <clears throat> and so as, we, as we, we end here, as we think about where our faith should be, what this tells us is, is that as the object of our faith, as Jesus, he can be trusted. Whatever, what other object of your affection, friends? has ever put on display and is continuing to put on display the patience and the waiting and the love and the trust for you. And I would say nothing. No spouse, no job, no money, no anything. Jesus is the only place to land that trust. And he is doing so in a way that, it, that, that describes to us and, and shows us the great love that he has for us way before we ever knew who he was. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we think about the marriage supper of the Lamb that we hear about in the final book of Revelation, but we do not think about how that is you putting off final glory, putting off the fullness of joy of eternity, of the second coming, of being united with all believers. We don't think about that in the way that we should, in the way that you are waiting for all of us to be around the table, that that is what salvation is for you. And you will not experience an ounce of that joy until you have us all here together. Father, I pray that that would direct our faith, not just where we place it, but what it is for, that it is for ourselves, but it is also for others that they would begin to see the love that you have for them, that we would play a role in that. Father, that we would be drawn to something, to someone who loves us so much, who's willing to wait for us, that we'd be able to say, I can trust you. And I give you my life. Father, we do not do that well. 
We do not hand over our lives well, but would you graciously take what we are giving today and would you multiply that? Would you be pleased with it? And would you allow us to be the privilege of tasting and seeing that you are in fact good? We ask this all in your son's name. Amen.